Rolling. Renegades. Andre and I had this big idea. Nurses know how to solve shit. Renegades. All right, so Amy, <laughs> I kind of stalked you on LinkedIn for a while because, you, you know, your social media stuff is pretty good. And I just want to know how you started originally, because if I'm correct, you started out as a child psychologist. Yeah, yeah. So I'm a licensed psychologist and I've been practicing for 23 years. And I see kids and families and adults mostly focus on kids and families. And about eight years ago, I don't know if if either of you remember, but Nadine Burke Harris did this big TED talk about adverse childhood experiences, which is what's referred to as the ACEs study. Yes. Yeah. Yeah. That originally came out of Kaiser in 1998 by Valetti. And it only got momentum in the last decade. And that's not uncommon for research, right? For it to kind of take a while to hit like the public forums. But anyway... She did this TED talk on adversity and it just went nuts. It's been viewed like millions and millions of times. Anyway, when that happened, she is a pediatrician and between her and the American Academy of Pediatrics, they came out and said like childhood adversity is the single most problem facing our nation today. Like we really need to be addressing adversities because the study basically showed that if you have some of these 10 early adversities in life, your lifelong trajectory for long-term health and not just mental health, but physical health problems increase significantly, the more adversity you experience. So At that time, a bunch of pediatricians from the Children's Health Alliance approached me and they're like, hey, you used to do behavioral health work in integrated care settings in pediatrics. So you kind of know how we work and how we think. And you're a trauma-informed therapist. You know about ACEs study and, and you work with kids who've been traumatized. Can you come and talk to us about how do we begin to address this in pediatric medical homes? So I went and I met with these group of pediatricians and They were like, this seems really like bad news, right? Kids experience adversity and it could have lifelong devastating consequences, like more likelihood for suicidality, more likelihood for cardiac disease, more likelihood for pulmonary diseases, all of these things that came out of this study that showed the more adversity you had in childhood, the higher likelihood you were to have these long-term population health effects. So I met with this group of doctors and they said, what do we do? about this. And my response to them was, you know, we're not going to be able to prevent all adversity that happens to kids, right? I mean, like, I wish I could. But instead, what we need to be doing is teaching parents about resilience and teaching parents how we build resilience. And, you know, the pediatric office for family practice docs, anybody in primary care are really in an incredible position to teach about what trauma is, what it looks like and how to mitigate it. So that's kind of how I began this work. It kind of was, it was this beautiful um, culmination of a whole bunch of work I had done between pediatric health and private practice with trauma. And my residency was with a highly traumatized population. And so it all just came together and I created a curriculum that now has, has significantly grown and, that's kind of how all the work came to start. You, know, you just reminded me of that metaphor. It's a cartoon um, where you have, it's like a laundry tub in the background and the faucet's on and the water's spilling over. And then there's two people badly trying to mop up the water that's spilling on the ground instead of just turning around and shutting off the faucet. And it's like that, like you're like pulling kids out of the water from drown, trying to keep them from drowning, where actually the trauma is coming from upstream. It's coming from traumatized parents and burnt out parents and people who aren't resilient. What we know is that intergenerational traumas that occur in families, sexual abuse, physical abuse, drug addiction, even poverty on some level. And also then there's historical traumas that have happened to groups of people, right? That those are the things that are creating long-term adversity. And going back to your point, Antra, about burnout, when I began working with this group of pediatricians, they were kind of early adopters, like, tell us what to do about this. We want to make a difference. And I began teaching them these trauma-informed interventions that maybe I would take 45 minutes to an hour to do in my office, but they only had like five minutes, right? That's fascinating. 
narrowing these down so that they could really have accessibility to these trauma-informed interventions to boost resilience, mitigate the adversity, speak to some of the intergenerational traumas. And what happened as kind of a qualitative outcome that we didn't expect is these providers were like, I'm less burned out now. I feel purposeful in my work. Mm. I was thinking of leaving primary care. And this was before COVID, before things were even in more distress as they are now. But they began saying to me, like, this is the most important work we should be doing with our patients. This is everything. And so it really decreased their burnout because their work all of a sudden felt a lot more purposeful. Amy, can you share with us when you had to start to teach them in little chunks, like give us an example of what that looked like for a doctor to start to practice some trauma-informed care with their patients. Cause I'm just curious what that looked like, especially if as a psychologist, you could spend an hour with a patient. Yeah. So we were really purposeful about how we went about it. Me and this group of nine pilot pediatricians to start with. The first thing we did is we wanted to make sure everybody in their practice became trauma-informed. And that was really important to us because you can imagine, right? You've both been in busy medical practices and in healthcare organizations where if we're going to start to talk to patients and even now many clinics are screening for these adversities, we better make sure that the front office staff, the MAs, the nurses, the billing people, everybody front to back, top to bottom knows what trauma looks like how it presents in patients, how you might be triggered as a professional, regardless of what your role is, when you're asking people about trauma or indicating that they've experienced trauma. So the first thing we did is let's make sure every office that these providers were in were trauma-informed offices. And that took a period of time. You can imagine going out to all these practices and giving them education around trauma-informed practices. Yeah. Like fertilizing the soil. Exactly. Because we really felt like it was unethical to start asking patients to talk about trauma that they've experienced, where they might actually be activated at the front desk. If a receptionist says you're 15 minutes late for your appointment, we might have to reschedule you. And it's a single mom who's taken two buses to get there. Or if they're judgy about, you know, the kids that are in the waiting room that are just doing their best to regulate and they need a snack and they haven't had a nap and mom's taking time off work or dad's taking time off work, there could be stress happening in the waiting room. So we have to first know how stress and trauma present, and then we have to make sure we're not increasing it or triggering it. And then once we felt like these spaces felt safer for everyone. Then I did a series of trainings with the providers on what some of these just very small dose resilience-based interventions could look like and encourage them to just start by trying one or two. And I have some funny stories that I can share with you. I think that was really what your question was, Antra, but um, it's, it's a kind of a long answer to it. No, you're, you're doing our work for us. Go. Yeah. Yeah. (laughs) Yeah. So, so basically what I did is I looked at two different factors. When we look at what should a resilience intervention look like, we have to first look at what is the developmental theme that's important for this child or this patient to be meeting. So for an example, in the zero to two years, right? Attachment, attunement, neurological development and play. That's really important to be happening in order to create healthy, securely attached little people. So first we have to know what should be present. And then we have to know if that went off track, right? If attachment isn't happening, if attunement isn't there, how do we get that back on track Mm -hmm. with trauma-informed research-based interventions? So that's when I kind of came into the providers and I said, let's start building those in, in these really small little doses. So a couple of examples of how that might look. One is making sure that parents knew the importance of what we call special time with their kids. And that means, you know, fully present play with your child for just 10 or 15 minutes a day, three to four times a week, where you turn off your phone and you're present with them. And it can happen during what we call, you know, regularly occurring times like bath time or, you know, getting ready for bedtime or a meal time. But there's so many parents you can imagine if we're talking about intergenerational traumas who never were played with, who didn't have that kind of what we call attuned engagement with their child, meaning 
They're watching for their cues. They're trying to anticipate, are they tired? Are they hungry? Are they kind of starting to rub their eyes? Are they sleepy? These aren't things. Resilience isn't something that you're just born with, right? It's something that you learn over time. And it's this intersection of so many things, your culture, your environment, your exposure, any traumas that you've experienced. So we have to assume that not all parents know how to play for 15 minutes with their kids. And on top of that, I didn't want parents to think that they had to spend an hour with every kid. Like if you're a single dad with three kids, you're never going to get anything done and trying to work. So, you know, we kind of dosed it out 10 to 15 minutes a day, three to four times a week, special time with your kids where it was fully engaged play that increases attunement, it increases play and it increases neurological development. And if you do that right, you have more secure attachment. It's these very little straightforward things that really create a different trajectory for a child. As a psychologist, seem really straightforward. It's things that we do as general practice. These medical providers are like, oh my gosh, this is amazing. This is great. This is exactly what we want to be doing. And so they began doing this in their practices. And a funny thing, Antra, because you were mentioning earlier that we had met at a, a mutual workout facility. So fast forward like six months later, I'm in the gym in the locker room. And these two moms are talking. And this one is like, yeah, my toddler's really acting out. And I went to my pediatrician to try to get some better advice on behavioral interventions for my toddler. And you know what she said? She said, I should just like do special time with them. And, and the friend is like, what is that? And she's like, I'm just supposed to play with her for 10 minutes, a few times a week and give her my full attention. And it's like putting money in the bank. And the other mom, wow. how did it work? And they're like, I can hear this conversation way back and forth. And I just, I paused and I said, uh, can I ask who your pediatrician is? And sure enough, it was one of these pediatricians who'd been doing a pilot project with me. And when I went back to that pediatrician, she said, Amy is like, it changes everything in my practice. Just having these little skills that I can teach parents. You know what I think is so cool about this is people don't know. And if you have this intergenerational trauma, you don't know that that is something that that little simple thing that doesn't cost money that you can fit in your day. It reminds me in healthcare. I don't know if you know who Atul Gwandi is, but he is a surgeon researcher and he was the one that did all the research around timeouts in an operating room, which is a simple checklist manifesto, right? Yeah, the checklist manifesto, but it's the same. Their whole organization was based on what can we do that will have the most impact, costs the least, and is simple, right? And like, I love so much that that's that's all it is. It's like 15 minutes, three times a week for your kids. It doesn't cost anything. It's And how fascinating that that's just not common knowledge. Yeah. Yeah. Right? Yeah. What do you mean I have to feed my kids? I just fed them yesterday. <laughs> I, I mean, it's not common knowledge and, you know, and it knows no socioeconomic bounds. It knows no cultural bounds. And I still remember being a young mom with littles. I have teenagers now, but hanging out with some of my friends and I would play peekaboo with their kids or hide and go seek. And they they would watch me with curiosity. Like, what are you doing? Because they'd never been played with in that way. And it's just, it's so vitally important for kids' development to have those healthy, secure attachments. Having a secure attachment is like the number one predictor of positive health outcome. So why wouldn't we be putting loads of time into teaching the people that have the most access to kids earliest in their lives on the job? So you see your pediatrician 15 times in the first two years of your child's life. They should be well-primed to have this information, right? Them, their nurses, their MAs, the staff, they all should be this well-oiled machine, in my opinion, for building resilience for kids. I want to stick a pin in that because there's so much farther to go. But when you're talking about this stuff, you do not sound like you're reading from a textbook. I mean, there is something behind what you're doing. Mm -hmm. I want to know a little bit about you. Like what happened that made you sink your teeth into this and go, yes, was it something personal in your life? Or like, what is behind the passion? You so obviously speak about this. Oh, that's such a sweet question, Karen. Thank you. In psychology, we say research is me search. So usually you're trying to undo whatever crap you went through. And I definitely had a childhood. If you looked at my ACE score, it's an ACE score of five. I experienced five of the childhood adversities 
divorced parents and drug and alcohol abuse and, and a series of things. And so when I went into my area of study, I actually was pre-med and thought, oh, okay, I'll, I'll do psychology as, you know, kind of a good major in undergrad. So I have good bedside manner, right? And the further I went along in my pre-med undergrad, the more I loved psychology. And I remember going to my academic advisor, who was the dean of the medical school and saying, I don't think I want to go to medical school. I think I want to become a psychologist. And he was like, "Ah, are you sure? And I said, yeah, what's the highest degree in psychology? And he said, well, you can get a PhD. So I did. I went and got a PhD in psychology and I studied pediatric health and uh, counseling psychology and trauma and worked a lot with stress and trauma. In fact, my senior thesis was around stress and trauma. So I've always been interested in how do we overcome adversity? I know that I have a really high resilience factor. So all of the really cool research that's coming out now is that you can have a really high adversity score. And if you have also some positive childhood experiences it mitigates that having an adult who cares about you uh, belonging to like a boys and girls club or having people at school who look out for you, just one other person in your life, feeling like someone advocates you when you don't feel safe, having access to a therapist, things like that. So as I went through my course of study, I became more and more interested in that went to graduate school. I did a residency at the Morrison center, which is in Portland, Oregon. And every single person I saw had to access one diagnosis of post-traumatic stress disorder. And I remember I was on Mondays and Wednesdays, I was working with early childhood home visits and I would go into homes, mostly hotels, to be honest, and motels to do these home visits with parents who were in extreme poverty and had experienced high amounts of of abuse. And these children were in really tough situations. And then on Thursdays, I would go to the Oregon Youth Authority and I would see these kids who had done really engage in really atrocious crimes. And I remember going back to my supervisor and I said, this is the same file. Mm. The the same file for this two-year-old is the same as the 16-year-old. It's just that there's been no intervention. Nobody's done anything Mm. to offset this kid's course. Nobody's cared about this kid's. Nobody is invested in them. And so I had that experience, which was really this turning point of why it's important to intervene early. And then specifically, I remember a client and I tell a story about her in my provider conferences that I give out here at the farm. And she was just a sweet little girl and she had was in foster care and her foster mom literally dropped her off at my office. I was a resident twice a week for therapy and her short-term goal was to be willing to identify feeling words and get messy because every time she had made a mess or gotten messy as a toddler, she'd been severely beaten. And so little by little over the course of many months, she began to trust me and we began to do feeling identification and I would start to play with messy things and she would kind of watch with skepticism. And then she was also in the safe environment with this incredible foster mom who was building strength in her and caring about her. And then one day she just, this little girl said to me, I think I'm going to play with that today. And it was like Play-Doh, sparkly Play-Doh. And I said, great. And we also had some finger paints in the room. So I put some finger paints out on a tray and we smeared it around and she had the Play-Doh and she put her finger in the finger paint and she kind of looked at it like, oof, this is really messy. And I took her hand and I put it on my nose so that paint went on my nose. And she just thought that was hysterical. And I think she was excited and terrified that an adult would let her make them messy. And that was really the beginning of a change for me where this moment between what I'm doing with her and what her foster mom's doing with her will change everything for this Mm. kid. Mm. And we need to be doing that as soon as we can with as many parents as we can. And so I, I think at a certain point in your career, you go from one-on-one to wanting to help many. And that's when I shifted from just doing my private practice to training medical providers and healthcare organizations. But it's because of that early work where I just felt like every single child should have access to this kind of care. And the only way I'm going to do it is if I educate as many people that see kids as early in their life as possible. 
Amy, when you were just telling that story, I saw where it comes from. When you put that girl's finger on your nose, it was no longer psychologist and patient. It was you and I are in this together, kid. I know you. I know you. I've been there. And that's where it comes from. That's where your passion comes from. It has been, and I could be full of shit, but your healing has come from what you did with her. It's a team. Like a big, it felt like a big sister. We're in this together, kid. I was everything at that moment for her. I was her mom. I was her sister. I was her friend. I was her coach. I was her therapist. And the number one resilience building factor is connection, 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 connection with another human being. And if you've experienced intergenerational trauma of any type, you haven't had that connection. And what we know is that someone can experience loads of adversity and trauma, but if they had one person who was there for them, it can mitigate so much of that early trauma. So one of the resilience interventions that I teach providers how to do, and it's probably one of their favorite ones. And one of the most overwhelming ones that they learn is called a circle of support where they literally draw out on this little target for, if it's for a baby, it's probably for their mom or dad, but if it's for an older child, it's for them. And if it's for an adult patient, it's for them their primary, secondary, and tertiary circles of support, because we have to know who the people are in a person's life. And if they're not present, we must build it with them, not for them, but with them. We must build it with them because if we don't have connection, we have nothing. We're alone. Everybody listening to this has heard a story, a TED talk, or seen a movie based on it that one person, one teacher, one neighbor, And the kid comes back and says, if it wasn't for that thing you said, or that day, that 10 minutes you spent with me, I'd be dead. I would have been in a gutter or hooked on drugs or whatever, that one person. And we hear those stories, but then hearing the real life applications of what you're saying, you don't even have to be a pediatrician seeing hundreds of, you know, anyone that listened to this is going to take five minutes to the neighbor's kid who seems like nobody pays attention to them or whatever. I mean, you can make such a big difference by just giving that focused time to somebody that you just know, you know, but we get too busy. So I, I love what your work is, but also how this can be like the inoculation for a a fast paced world. That's creating more and more of this kind of stuff. And you're you're both familiar and I'm sure your listeners are too with SSRIs, right? (laughs) It's an antidepressant. Well, there's in the field of resilience research, there's a term called SSNRs, safe, stable, nurturing relations, Mm. safe, stable, nurturing relations. And we know that that is the key to mitigating trauma and adversity, right? So the sooner we identify who the people are in your life that are SSNRs, the, the more supported that child or that person will be. And so when I do the circle of support with individuals, what I'm trying to do is identify who are your people in your primary circle. Um, Most people can identify two or three people there. And if you don't have anybody in your primary circle or the people that are in your primary circle are, are unhealthy or otherwise absent or abusive somehow, then we look at that secondary circle and we say, okay, well, who are the people that maybe they're not the first people that you would call, but maybe it's another mom in a mom's group, or it's somebody at work, or it's a mom of your child's friend's parents, or it might be the neighbor who's offered to bring by a pie five times. And you keep telling her, you're okay. It's fine. No, you know, I don't want to burden you. And what we find are a couple of really important things. One, when we ask people about their circle of support, they really don't want to go outside that primary circle because they don't want to burden people. They don't want to overwhelm them. They don't want to ask if they've had uh, historical traumas they're worried about being rejected. They're worried about being further oppressed. They're worried about being judged, right? I don't have all my stuff together. I don't want to ask for extra help. Interestingly, dads, when you study dads on the circle of support, they usually have one person in their primary circle and it's usually mom, which means all the burden then goes back to their spouse. And so, especially for men and boys, we want to build out their circles of support and and let them know it's okay to need connection and support which we don't socialize well for, but the really cool thing to your point, Karen, about paying attention to your neighbor's kid is this in the 23 years I've been doing the circle of support. I have yet to see someone who's on that secondary circle say no when they're invited in to help the person, because I think inherently people want to be helpful. 
It's just that we have our own fears and worries that prevent us from asking for that help. But I can't even begin to tell you the amount of stories that I've heard where a child or an adult doesn't have anybody in their primary circle. And so I sit with them and we either make a script or we text someone or we make an email or we call them together. And they say, actually, it would be really great if you could bring over a pie so that I could shower while my baby's sleeping. Or I'm really struggling with my marriage right now. Would you be willing to get coffee? Nobody says no. (gasps) This is like so freaking simple and common sense. I mean, you don't think of like the ability to ask for help Mm -hmm. is such a huge resilience factor and so few people know how to do it. I mean, mea culpa, like me too. I have trouble asking for help. But you're right. I can't imagine anybody in that kind of situation. Of course. Mm -hmm. And it gives me more purpose. Absolutely. And that's what I tell people when they're like, oh, I don't want to ask her because I don't want to burden her. What I'll say is, would you want someone to deny you the opportunity to help them? Like you wouldn't want somebody to make that decision for you. You'd be like, excuse me, I'll make that decision myself. But because we live in a very individualistic society, I alone can fix this problem, pull it up by the bootstraps, kind of, we really miss these opportunities to be helped. And there are so many other more beautiful collectivistic societies that can model for us a village and creating that village. And that's essentially what we do with the circle of support is we build out a village for a new mom or a struggling grandmother or a teenager. The Oregon Pediatric Society is using the circle of support now as a way to identify helpers with a child who's suicidal to make sure that they have their support people. You can imagine for our elderly community, Mm. I mean, oh, so many alone, older folks who have nobody. Can you imagine? And it's so simple. I'm curious, you're teaching healthcare providers office, you're teaching them about trauma-informed care. What if they themselves have been traumatized? Yeah, I mean, again, research is me-search, right? Why do you go into helping professions? It's usually because, you know, you want to help. That's the title of this podcast, by the way. (laughs) (laughs) Um, You know, you want to help people because of something you've been through. I mean, how many stories have we heard about oncology nurses who had cancer or dentists who had this fear of going to the dentist when they were younger and they wanted to change that for someone. I mean, that's so much part of our story. So definitely what happens when you begin to do trauma-informed awareness, which is the beginning of trauma-informed care, just bringing up the awareness, people look at this list and, and we have the original list from the Kaiser study and now it's been expanded through the National Child Traumatic Stress Network to 30 different factors. They begin looking at this list and they're like, holy crap. I actually have experienced a lot of adversity. I didn't know there was a name for this. I didn't know that it created that much long-term health impact for me or could. And so I would say, Antra, it's pretty significant when they start becoming more aware of it. And it also creates greater compassion. Once you realize that from the original ACEs study, 62% of people have at least one ACE score, right? And that was... 20 years ago on a mostly white insured population. So we know that trauma is present. And if we just begin acting like everybody experiences stress and adversity, and we don't know the story that people are carrying around, we'll begin to be more compassionate healthcare providers. I use the analogy of the two suitcases when I'm talking to providers. In one suitcase, we imagine waking up every day and I'm going to pick up my two suitcases, whether I'm aware of it or not, by the way. And in one hand, it's my short-term adversity. So it might be, if you're a nurse right now, it might be staffing shortages. It might be exposure to COVID. It might be job insecurities. It might be just, you know, your own family and what you're going through, personal adversities. That's in your right-hand suitcase, your kind of short-term worries. And in your left hand is literally all of our baggage, our childhood adversities, having gone through divorce or trauma or whatever the case may be. And that might be from six months ago or 16 years ago. But every day we wake up, we pick up these two suitcases and we walk towards another individual and they have their two suitcases too. And if we're not aware of the fact that I'm carrying my stuff and you're carrying your stuff, we're going to have a pretty negative interaction, right? We could, because maybe you're terse and frustrated with me as we're having this interaction in the hallway of the hospital Um, And I'm like, God, what's the matter with Karen? She's such a, you know what, like without thinking, I wonder if her mom's sick. I wonder if she got home safely from her trip to Ohio. If there's somebody there, she was 
caring for? Have I asked lately, like how her kids are doing? People want to bring their whole selves to work, but we only recognize their professional selves and we give no grace. But once we become more aware of trauma adversity, the more compassion we have. And, and to your point, Antra, healthcare providers have plenty of it, just like everybody else does. And it can either be something you become aware of and more compassionate with for yourself and others, or something that can create a really big barrier. Amy, I didn't even know that there was a thing called trauma-informed care until about, see, I've been in my patient advocacy business for five years. I think around year two, I got a patient who called me because she was frustrated with her medical team. And she asked me, are you trauma-informed? I'm like, what are you talking about? Like, sure, I'm a nurse, I guess, right? Like, I didn't really even know what to say. I must be. <laughs> it must be. She was using these terms and I was like, yeah, sure. I, I have a, the ability to connect with people. So I think when she took me on, she knew because I was there, but I had no idea what she was talking about. And she actually went to a private medical group that she had to pay out of pocket for because she wasn't getting trauma-informed care and she really needed it. So it's just interesting that as healthcare providers, as nurses, as medical assistants, as the front office, no idea, Mm -hmm. no idea. And that was like three years ago. Yeah. So I, I can imagine what a shift this would be for people if all healthcare providers knew about it and then would address this burnout and this unhappiness at work and PTSD from COVID. That seems like, at least from what I've seen of your work, is something you're trying to address. Absolutely. And the thing is, we can't even begin to talk about resilience for patients until we talk about your own. That's why before we did any of the resilience training, we did trauma-informed care for all the practices because inherently stuff comes up. So we have to do some preparedness for the providers that are trying to provide trauma-informed care so that they're ready to do that work because it's incredible work, but it's not light work to do. How are you doing that in the healthcare field? Because I can imagine from my own experience as an OR nurse, you could come in and do an in-service and you could talk about trauma-informed care. You'd get maybe 45 minutes to an hour. Well, then what? Yeah. Often I saw it. That's what happens to a lot of big healthcare organizations. And that's what I would call trauma aware. Oh, okay. That's a new thing. I didn't know about that before. People might come in and they might present cranky or angry or have poor medical compliance or poor medical adherence to, you know, suggestions or medication or whatnot. That's trauma. Mm -hmm. I just thought they were being jerks. If you can imagine a poor person or a person of color who's had horrible experiences in our healthcare system, and they come into a clinic and they're grumpy or angry or suspicious of what you're asking them to fill out or provide for them because they have had really horrible experiences and you just write them off as a jerk and you treat them poorly, that's just going to perpetuate that historical trauma for them. But if instead you begin to be curious and moving from what's wrong with this person, why are they acting like this to, I wonder what happened and how can I help? That's a very simple, but profound shift. I wonder what happened. What's going on for them? So that first step on is just, that's a trauma awareness, right? And that's happening, I think, across many healthcare organizations where they're getting a one hour trauma awareness across the healthcare organizations. And my big thing, and people who are in this field will say, that's a good first start. But to truly be trauma informed, you have to have that information happening Many times over the course of time, you have to make sure it's infused into everything that you do, that you've practiced scripts and you've become aware of how this presents and you continue to get boosters or updates to the information because it's ever changing. And we have to continue to kind of be aware of our stuff and the other stuff that's coming up when someone presents with trauma and then recognize like, what do I do about that? So often when people hear me talk about trauma-informed care, it might be like their first entree into it, like a 45 minute talk. And then either a particular practice or organization will become invested in what well, we want to learn more. Can you come do a half day training or a full day training? And then because of that, I've started hosting conferences at my farm where it's a full three-day training on everything from what does trauma look like? How does it present to how do we begin to do these resilience-based interventions? And that's really where my passion for the provider lounge came from, which is like, 
how do you continue, not just once you've been trained, but to have steady doses of trauma-informed care and building resilience, because it really is a commitment to continuing education. The great thing is that once you get it, it's kind of like Maya Angelou, right? Once you know better, you do better. Once you get it, you want more of it because it feels so good and it decreases burnout and it decreases overwhelm. But it's not necessarily what you would go to for like continuing education because you have to get all these other things that like you were talking about checked off. And then all of a sudden people who've gone to a training with me or come to the farm for a training are like, oh my gosh, this is everything. Everything. This is the most yeah. important thing. You, you, I was just going to say, pop that in your mouth. You, you don't, we don't have to replay it. In 2017, I did research in spirituality and clinical practice about taking people with chronic fatigue and fibromyalgia and chronic Lyme, these diseases with a similar symptomology. And I'm thinking if I could go back knowing even just a little bit from this and knowing people get sick because they're on chronic red alert for danger and they're, they weren't raised in a safe environment and they're chronically hypersensitive to the environment and that chronic stress always engage stress response creates massive amounts of oxidative stress and inflammation and creates downstream illness that's, that's right and the second part of that is they get something out of being sick it's almost like the universe has a good idea because they can't say no because they got the shit beat out of them when they said no when they were a kid but now that they're sick that's their no so the red alert creates the illness and the illness is exactly what they need because they don't feel safe saying no. I would have known mm, more succinctly how to address those two different angles. Yeah. And the really cool thing, we can name it now. So for, even for healthcare providers that are a little bit like, oh, I don't like trauma. You want me to talk about feelings? We can shift it to medical jargon, right? If that makes you feel more comfortable, we can talk about allostatic load that our body is meant for homeostasis and it's meant to be kind of in a regulated state. And when it doesn't, we go into allostasis where we try to kind of balance and get back into homeostasis. And what creates allostatic load are these long-term environmental traumas, intrafamilial adversities, exposures that we have that create high allostatic load, high stress loads that create long-term illness. Because essentially what happens is our body somaticizes our stress. We have headaches and stomach aches and fatigue and overwhelm. And so anytime anybody comes in with that type of presentation, I'm wondering what happened. And you're right. So then what happens is that they get what we call a psychologist secondary gain, this ability to get attention and comfort in a way they never have before, because it's okay to be sick in our culture. It's not okay to have mental health needs and need to have those things. Yeah. Addressed. So instead we're sick. And now I have, for instance, like you said, fibromyalgia, which I'm not saying is not a genuine diagnosis, but it's then further exacerbated with trauma and stress and the lack of ability to ask for help. Um, and now we've made it okay. And so any education around chronic illness must also include how do we become more resilient? How do we become more connected? How do we reach out and ask for help and support? Because we know that all of those immunocompromised disorders will be lessened with less stress and adversity. Okay, but so this is what happens in in the in, in the real world of healthcare. Sometimes you get that, that revolving door patient mm-hmm. who everybody thinks is crazy, mm-hmm. who you know gets talked about about behind their back. Like I'm not going to pretend it doesn't happen because it does. So you know, even the awareness when you get a patient like that who Karen is describing, who keeps coming back, who keeps coming back because it's their secondary gain. How how do we how do we bridge that gap? Because there's the bias on the one side, and it is a bias. I mean, it's prevalent in healthcare. And then there's this, this person who's ill, who doesn't feel good, who's had trauma, you know, I mean, to me, that's a, yeah. Yeah. Is it enough just to make trauma aware cultures within hospitals? Trauma aware is a really good first start, right? Because if you're trauma aware, you'll begin thinking about those patients differently. So I know you're aware of this, right? We call that the 80, 20 rule, 20% of your patients take up 80% of your time. They're the ones that using the on-call services, going to the ER, et cetera. But there is a ton of research that shows if we begin to invest in those people preventatively and provide psychoeducation and support, 
in a compassionate manner. If you have five of those patients in your practice and you put them all into a group for psychoeducation support, and you focus on the behaviors that you want to see, wellness and self-care, asking for support, guess what? They'll stop calling you as much at 10 o'clock at night because their needs are being met at four o'clock in the afternoon. The reason they're calling at 11 o'clock at night is because of an unmet need. And once we begin to recognize those needs and provide care and support preventatively, which is trauma-informed, they act out a lot less. That's amazing. Again, it's just so simple. Like every healthcare organization, every office should have that group. Should yes. have that. It doesn't kind of- mean easy though. Simple means transformational right. healthcare. We're right. really having to transform how we look at healthcare. For instance, we know that if a mom has an ACE score of four or more, the likelihood that their child will fail all three developmental outcomes on the ages and stages questionnaire is increased by like 20%. What if we put all those moms into a mommy group? at a pediatric clinic where it's okay to get help because it's not a mental health facility. It's just your doctor's office Mm -hmm. and saw how that shifted developmental trajectory. That's what I mean by simple. Not that it's, you know, like simple like that. It's sort of like what I was saying about, you know, the checklist manifesto, right? Like these are things that we all can institute in our, in our healthcare systems and our clinics. And absolutely. Absolutely. The (laughs) fake it to you, make it can't ask for help stuff. I'm, this story is coming to me and I, I'm, I'm just going to say it because I don't know why. Uh, I had a client once who, I'm going to change the story a little bit in case. She was from a family of eight children. I think she was the youngest or second to youngest and her older sister, so one older than her, was born with severely disabled, mentally, physically disabled. The parents were always fighting at each other, very toxic home life and the parents would always use the kids against each other to get back at each other and so this woman's story was nobody took care of my sister you know she would have just if it weren't for me taking her to swimming every night uphill both ways and you know it became this very victim i had to bring the burden my family i was so mistreated even though i was doing all this and a lot of victim identity as a victim and i was just listening to her and listening to her story of the parents and listening and knowing myself and being kind of, I'm not perfect, but I can be manipulative. I can be a real ass. I can, and and knowing and owning that part of me made it safe enough for me to ask her, sounds like you were manipulating your parents using your sister. And I said, I'm not saying you didn't love her, I said, it gave you purpose and all that was good. What you did for her was amazing. She wouldn't have become, you know, had that life were it not for her. But it sounds like you're kind of using her to get back at your parents to make them feel like they did nothing. And we had enough rapport and I was able to say the way I do that and manipulate in my life. Mm -hmm. I'm like, we're all human. We all do that. But it was able to take her from victim to manipulator. And that was one step up. Like, Oh my God, I was doing that. Mm-hmm. You know, that was a resilience factor, actually. I was a little kid and that's all I knew to do. And, and she saw herself differently after that. Really- and I think in the moms groups too, like letting a safe space for people to, because we're so punished for being weak or manipulative or all these terms like that are labeled as bad that's in our right. society. They're just human. That work, that work that you did with her, Karen, by the way, is about $2,000 of psychotherapy. Um, <laughs> what? <laughs> just being able to like identify that for her and name it for her and challenge her on it, right? But it's only because you had a safe, connected relationship with her that she was able to hear that. And, and here's what I would say, right? If you're a, a, a nurse and you're listening to this and you hear this story from Karen, I'm going to shift one word from that we can help our patients better understand themselves when they're talking in that kind of language, right? I had to do this and I had to do this. And if it's not this, then this, if we can just affirm for them, wow, look at how adaptive you were. Look at those protective mechanisms that you had to have to survive. Now they're no longer victim or even manipulator, which is in my opinion, still somewhat of a negative connotation to what is a brilliant coping mechanism. 
Yes. Yes. Brilliant protective factor. Let's name it that. This is what you had to do to survive. I'm going to cry again. (laughs) (laughs) This is what you had to survive. And so many people have never had their life framed that way. They talk about like what you were saying, taking a sister to and from practice and all these things. And, you know, to, to be seen really. It's all we want is to be seen and connected with another human being. When we name that for them and say, that's brilliant. That was self-preserving. That was a protective mechanism you have. That builds resilience for you. Mm-hmm. That allows you, the definition of resilience is to be able to adapt and change in spite of adversity. And you did it. I mean, that's the way I think for even for me, looking at my own trauma was being pointed in that direction. Like, oh my gosh, all of the trauma that I suffered was adaptive. It was resilience. It was like, and that changed the entire narrative for me. It totally got me out of that victim mentality because I was being turned in a direction of, you know, positive and this is good. And it sounds like lip service sometimes we're like, Oh, be positive or, Oh, you know, but it's not, there is actual, Oh my gosh, I did that to protect myself, to protect my sister, to, to help my family. Like, I mean, that's amazing. And it, Even, even the things that we look at with people that we might see as completely unhealthy coping mechanisms. If in the face of adversity, you haven't been modeled healthy coping mechanisms, and instead you turn to overeating or drug use or alcohol abuse or pornography or whatever the case may be, your body is trying to find a way to cope with uncertainty. And until you're taught a different way of coping, you're going to use only the things that have been available to you or known to you or shown or modeled to you throughout your entire life. And so we have to begin to label that for people and say, I get why you started smoking weed when you were 12 you felt better. It worked really well. Nobody ever said to you, Hey, you should really try some meditative breathing. That doesn't happen when there's intergenerational trauma. Mm -hmm. And so it's only when they begin to learn a different way of being a different way of coping that they can. But even the the skills that we see early on that I think as, as healthcare providers, we judge as unhealthy coping mechanisms are still protective mechanisms for them to deal with horrific pain. People with higher ACE scores, are more likely to use drugs, inject drugs, have substance abuse problems. I mean, all of those things, because they're trying to find a way to cope with their adversity. So it's our job, if we want to look different, to teach them different, different tools. And and reframe, if possible, the trauma. How prevalent do you think, I mean, you did say that, you know, trauma-informed care is definitely healthcare organizations, healthcare providers, they are recognizing it. It is becoming more mainstream, but how much, how much farther do we need to go? You know, it kind of also depends on geographic region. Oregon has done a really lovely job becoming trauma-informed and learning about ACEs. But a few years ago, still only about 40% of like pediatricians knew what the ACEs study was. That's getting better. So I think trauma awareness is becoming better. I think Nadine Burke Harris is now the Surgeon General for the state of California. She's the one I was talking to at the very beginning of this discussion, who did the TED Talk on mm-hmm. ACE. So now she's doing like statewide incentivizing for screening patients and families for ACEs. So I think we're getting better. I think, you know, the American Academy of Pediatrics said ACEs is the single most unaddressed public health problem facing our nation today. And that was you know, seven years ago now. So we're becoming more aware that it's a problem. Now we're turning towards, instead of just becoming aware of adversity, also buffering with resilience mechanisms. But I would say all of that's focused on provider and healthcare training. So we have a long way to go before the general public understands it. Right. Um, Teachers. Yeah. Teachers are another big one. Um, And they have some education that's happening in their systems as well, especially uh, post COVID and comprehensive distance learning. They've had to do a lot more awareness of trauma-informed care in schools. Yeah. But we have a long way to go. So what kind of work are you, if, if anyone listening to this either wants to get involved in this kind of work or is in a hospital or has a a practice or whatever, and they want to implement trauma-informed care. How do you help with that? What kind of programs do you have? Or So first of all, most states have a trauma-informed program, like there's Trauma-Informed Oregon, for instance, that has a lot of robust research and information specific to healthcare organizations. Right now, I'm working with a colleague of mine, and we're writing a book for the American Academy of Pediatrics around a blueprint to screening for ACEs and becoming um, trauma-informed. 
building resilience in pediatric practices. So I'm super excited about that. It will come out next year sometime, fingers crossed that I can sit down in front of a computer. Um, You know, you can reach out to me through my website about um, like Antra was talking about um, short-term trainings, half-day trainings, full-day trainings. And then a couple of things that I offer through my business is twofold. I want to provide organizational health and wellness. And I do that through a program called Thrive, which is for healthcare organizations committed to organizational wellness. And they can reach out to me about that. It's for um, either large healthcare systems or even, you know, smaller clinics. Um, And then for the individual provider, um, I have the retreat at my farm that happens twice a year and they get 18 hours of continuing medical education, which is really cool. Um, and then I also have the provider lounge, which is a place where we come together once a month. I do a didactic on whatever they might want. Recently, we did like motivational interviewing for vaccine hesitancy or how to talk to tough teenagers or how to build circles of support. And then they get another half hour of just consultation with me, um, with a psychologist who's really aware of trauma and resilience and how all of that presents. And that happens once a month. So there's a couple of things I do both systemically for organizations and for individuals. But is is everything you do systemically organizational and for individuals all on your website? All of it's on my website. And mm-hmm. that is, we'll put a link to, but just for yeah. people listening. Um, www.dramyllc.com. Oh, I, wow. That's a good one. I think that, you know, how we've been talking so much, Karen, about, you know, what is the education that nurses, this is just for nurses, get annually every year in health in the, in the healthcare organization, like trauma informed care should be an annual, you get it every single year. I mean, honestly, like if, if I had to listen to fire safety one more time, because I have all the fire (laughs) alarms memorized and I know where every single extinguisher is, I want to poke my eyes out, but trauma informed care is evolving. It's, you know, more, it's me search. It's, you know, like there's, it's just a never an end to it. So that to me, that annual, like, I could see that being. And it's chronic illness prevention. That's right. That is chronic illness prevention. Mm-hmm. Yeah, exactly. It's healing. Oh my gosh. I love this. Um, I could send you the transcript of this and that's like three chapters of your book written right there. I think. Oh, thank you. <laughs> oh <my God. laughs> it's so true. It's so true. Yeah. Awesome. This is, you're doing amazing work and I just love, I love, I mean, I. Will you be my friend? <laughs> absolutely absolutely. find enough nurses to come together and we'll do your own uh trauma-informed care for sure i was just gonna say that we need to have a longer form course we'll talk we'll talk to you about that we'll get in touch with you that's definitely something we should do we should totally build a so amy what we were um what we're trying what we're working on next is you know we've got these speakers who have so much valuable information. And we always use this nurse we interviewed, who's a lymphedema expert. Mm -hmm. And we decided that we were going to build content, further content for people that wanted more in this kind of um, conversational style, right? So people could just plug it in and then offer our CEs. You, you, you would be, it would be so cool to have a trauma-informed module. Yeah. 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 I I think so. And it just gives so much back, right? To, Mm -hmm. to the, the nurse. Yeah, yeah, to the provider, whoever it is. Yeah. Me search. Right. Thank you for joining us yeah, and with your busyness and your COVIDness. Yeah, I know. <laughs> yeah, it's my pleasure. It's my pleasure. Thanks yeah, for so me. good. So what good you're doing for, for nurses is really, really cool. I, I commend you. It's it's great. Yeah. yeah. We, we, All we're doing is shining a light on people like you. So yeah. win win. Renegades.